Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back to 2019. Russell Brand was making a biscuit vagina on Celebrity Bake Off. Coronavirus was an unnamed sickness incubating somewhere in Wuhan. And conspiracy theorists brought to mind a largely harmless group of people who believed that the earth was flat or that the royal family were lizards. Normal stuff. But then the pandemic hit. Dr. Naomi Klein has spent the best part of her career studying shocks and crises and how disaster capitalists swoop in to profit off them. I spoke to her about her new book, Doppelganger, which maps the conspiracy landscape that became mainstream during the pandemic, whether conspiracy influencers are simply grifters, and why the wellness community found a friend in fascism. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Naomi Klein, hello. How are Hi. you? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Glad to have you here. Um, first things first, before we get into your wonderful book, Doppelganger, A Trip Into the Mirror World, I just ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are in your own words. I'm Naomi Klein. I am a writer. I've written... This is my ninth book, um, but I also teach university students. I teach at University of British Columbia, uh, teach environmental studies uh, in the geography department. Very nerdy, um, and I'm a mom, <laughs> and uh, I, live in the, I live in the most beautiful part of, part of the world, in my opinion, which is British Columbia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My neighbors are orca whales. Oh my gosh. I'm slightly <laughs> jealous of that. This is completely on a tangent. I recently <laughs> discovered you can go snorkeling with orca whales in Norway and thought, I need to book that. Uh, anyway, let's talk. I feel like that's starting to seem less wise. The more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess you see blackfish and you sort of go, mm, I don't know if I should be getting in there, but I just I think they're such incredible animals. Anyway, they are the best. Maybe we should talk about your book. <laughs> you do I would much prefer to talk about orchids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm um, homesick. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And you're only here for two days as well. I know. I've been on I, the road though for almost a month. Oh my gosh! Really? <laughs> well, respect and respect for tackling this subject matter because. It's, well, it's different to your previous work, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's more personal. Um, top line, tell us about it. What's the book about? So the book is 
broadly about conspiracy culture and about the way that there has been a kind of a derangement during the COVID years. And it's an attempt to map the way the world has changed, the way we have changed, the way people we know have changed, become kind of unrecognizable. And the jumping off point for that is that um, I sort of lost control over my public identity during COVID because I, I, I've always been occasionally confused with another nonfiction Naomi writer. Uh, um, her name is Naomi Wolf. She wrote a book called The Beauty Myth and other feminist books. But during COVID, the identity confusion just went viral. And it also became one of the internet's favorite jokes. And she became kind of a doppelganger, not just of me, but of herself, of who she used to be. Um, so she started hanging around with a lot of powerful right-wing figures like Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign manager and strategic advisor, um, Tucker Carlson of Fox News, uh, people here in the UK like James Dellingpole, because she was telling a story about COVID that was extremely conspiratorial, that, that, that there was a kind of a plan to commit genocide using vaccines, we all know people who believe this, I think, who, who have taken a healthy skepticism towards Big Pharma, not a fan either, uh, not a fan of D Bill Gates either, not a fan of Davos either, this is me, but taken it to almost really like kind of Hollywood extremes, imagining these sort of QAnon type plots. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, if somebody who the world, a lot, of, a lot of people in the world thinks is me has become a doppelganger of themselves, this is the premise for a very wild and weird story. Mm -hmm. And so this book is, is different because it's more personal, but it's also difficult, uh, different because um, it is more experimental, a little bit stranger. It's more creative nonfiction mm -hmm. than, than my previous books about climate change and well, disasters. Look, it's richer for it. And I mean, there's so much in that answer already that I want to get into, not just that a doppelganger doesn't necessarily correspond between two people, but between the extension of someone's self. Yeah. The fact that this probably became more pronounced for you when you're during COVID, right? Lockdown. So your digital identity becomes a far more significant part of who you actually are as exactly. a person. Yeah. But let's start with one of the first things you said. You used the phrase conspiracy culture mm -hmm. instead of conspiracy theory. Yes. Can you explain that distinction? You know, I consider myself a theorist and I am a fan of theory. I think we should... Um, have respect for, for rigorous theory. So I try not to honor <laughs> people who are just sort of throwing nonsense at the wall to see, to get clicks and clout. Mm. Theorists, <laughs> because it changes a lot. You know, like one minute it's COVID is a bioweapon cooked up in a Chinese lab to depopulate the West. And the next minute it's, why are you even wearing a mask? It's just, it's it like, what are you a wimp? It's not even a cold. Mm. And, it, and, and you kind of like, Pick if you one. were a theorist, you would need you would need to pick one uh -huh. for your theory to make sense. So I call them conspiracy influencers, um, and I and I call it conspiracy world, conspiracy culture, or the mirror world, where you know up is down. Um, and uh, I use my own doppelganger, who's become a real s crossover star in this world because she is formerly somebody who was a prominent feminist who actually worked for the Democratic Party at different points and now is very much you know, taking pictures of her gun and um, claiming people who um, have been vaccinated are not exactly humans and no longer smell like humans, like some really wild theories. So um, 
you know, I use that almost like a like like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, like to fall down the rabbit hole with my doppelganger and and try to map what is going on in this world because there's there's so much that's strange about it, the way language gets twisted and turned. So, mm. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody who's watching like remembers people who claimed that they were victims of like like the Holocaust. They wore yellow stars because you know, they were unvaccinated or they appropriated um, other slogans like I can't breathe from the Black Lives Matter movement, but they were talking about a mask like they can't breathe with a mask. Mm. So all kinds of weirdness. So I use her as the white rabbit to to, to help me understand the upside down world. I mean, we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole over the course of the mm. conversation. Um, but I just like to focus on the personal for a second, right? Because your books, your works are treated very seriously. Um, they're, they're viewed with respect. I mean, I, I was reading in the Times, the Times of London for an American audience, mm-hmm. um, that they described you as one of the most influential people under 35 when your early works came out, right, mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, during COVID, you've got Naomi Wolf, who uh, tweeted, she visited Belfast, and she tweeted something about how amazing it was in Belfast, where they don't have 5G, the air feels you know, clearer, it's calm, it's just like the 1970s. And so she then immediately is ridiculed, one, because there is 5G in Belfast, yeah. and two, actually it was quite tumultuous in Belfast in the 1970s. Mm-hmm, so I hear. <laughs> so on the one hand, mm-hmm. you are an incredibly respected academic, uh, a person of insight, a person worth listening to, it must be hurtful. It must, honestly, your sense of self must have been damaged by these comparisons, I, or maybe not. I'd yeah, I think it was difficult for a while, but now I'm, uh, I've, I've, I think the book has been a really healing and liberating experience for me because I, you know, having a doppelganger, it forces you to take yourself less seriously. You know, we live in a culture that kind of trains us to treat ourselves like a product, like a brand. You know, the first book I wrote, No Logo, was about the rise of the culture of the brand. Uh, You know, companies saying, well, it's not about the product, it's about the brand that we're selling. And then you had the first people who were brands. And that, you know, that, that, that is something that's really interesting to me. I'm interested in how that changes culture. I'm interested in how we create this double of ourselves. And I think the more brutal capitalism becomes, the more panicked we all become, the more insecure we all become, and the more we focus inwards on perfecting the self, projecting the self, performing the self, you know? Mm. And so that's how I, you know, the book is called Doppelganger, but it's not about her or about me. It's really about how we're making these doubles of ourselves all the time. Like your avatar is not really you. People mistake it for you, but it's kind of like a commodity version of mm. you online performing the brand version of Ollie, right? Is that mm. fair? Yeah. Kind of. I yeah, mean, no, it is fair. And we're all we're all in the same system. So, you know, people get confused about their video game avatars, like is that them? Um, you know, or is that is that is that more them than them? Is that less them than them? People confuse their kids for brand extensions, you know? And yeah. so I, I all of this, I think is a problem because we are living in a time when we have a lot of major crises to confront. And they're not the kind of crises we can confront just by perfecting ourselves. They're, they really are the, uh, we really need to, to, I think, loosen the hold on ourselves a little bit and, and find each other and, and, and work collectively to confront these really powerful forces. So yeah, I mean, it was a little hard, but then I, I actually found it really freeing 
because what having a doppelganger of like if there was a doppelganger, do you have a doppelganger a little bit i feel like you do i don't know why i'm having a feeling that you do i mean there's an online there's an, i've got an online persona for sure mm -hmm. um there's stuff i i don't is there somebody else who people say you look like there yeah there actually is you know what there is okay. uh, i'm not going to name him okay, okay but he works okay. for a, an outlet with a different political persuasion right. he does he does similar um style <laughs> content to the stuff i make um my friends take, take a lot of joy in comparing me to him actually yeah well the funny thing about having a doppelganger is that it does your head in about all these I'm ways that, that we. I want to know who it is. You can tell me. <laughs> I'll after. tell you after. Um, but it it's all, all the things that you can do to to perfect yourself to perform yourself. It basically tells you you're wasting your time because there's mm. somebody out there who the rest of the world or a lot of a, a not insignificant portion of of the world believes is you. They're doing all kinds of wild things. So for me as a writer. I found it kind of freeing because it meant I could take myself less seriously, play with form a little mm -hmm. bit more. This is this you know, I, I've never had so much fun writing a book, and it's because I let myself write in the voice that I actually have with my friends, not serious intellectual <laughs> professor voice. Amazing. This is why my parents were completely panicked. <laughs> I mean, the first line what of the book. Doing? The first line of the book is in my defense. It was never my intent to write the book. I did not have time. It, uh, um, no one asked me to, and many people. Uh, strongly cautioned against it, and that includes members of, of my family. <laughs> um, just on that point as well about uh, Naomi Wolf, I think you did handle it very sensitively, and I think it's an important distinction that should be made for people who haven't read it yeah. yet, that it is not just, uh, you're not sort of settling a score, right? It's, you're talking about this broader issue, and I guess now is, let, well, let's, let's go down the rabbit hole, right? Well, let's I mean, I think that, that that's and it also, and just an important point that I would just build on a little bit is, I'm trying to understand why people are changing in the ways that they're they, that they are. Like, how could somebody who, you know, when I was in university, she was a really important mm. political voice. Uh, she helped insmi inspire me to become a writer. And so to see her now with her gun and Steve Bannon and talking about border warfare and things that are just totally unrecognizable from any kind of values that she previously stood for. Um, I want to understand how that happens. And I make a little sort of jokey equation in the book. But it's not totally a joke, which is, you know, how do we understand these, like, the reasons why people change in this way? And I'm sure people are thinking of other people they know, other people who they've seen change. And it, my equation is narcissism slash grandiosity. That's key. <laughs> uh, times social media addiction. All very online people, like, really, really need those dopamine hits. Mm. Um, plus midlife crisis. Um, divided by public shaming equals right-wing meltdown. <laughs> and the public shaming piece is, I think, something that it's worth, you know, doppelganger literature, for those of you who remember, um, you know, reading some of this in high school and university maybe, you, like, like if you think about a story like The Double or a film, there was a film story starring Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg of, uh, made of, of Dostoevsky's The Double. But you always think you're confronting your doppelganger, but in the end, you're confronting yourself. And if you make the mistake of trying to kill your doppelganger, you will die. That is like an ironclad rule of all doppelganger novels and films. Not at least because you've got a lot of guns. So you, you, have to, you really have to see what this is telling you. And I think one of the things that we all should look at is what happens when you have this culture of online bullying and shaming. Mm. Because she's somebody who faced a lot of it. Um, people really made mocking her a sport, which is part of why the stuff that blew back on me happened. A lot of it was just people saying thoughts and prayers to Naomi Klein. Like every time she did something, part of the joke was that I would get blamed and then people would, would, would express fake sympathy for me. 
but it actually has an effect. Like people don't just disappear when they get ejected mm. or canceled or whatever you want to say. I mean, some of them cross over into these pretty nefarious alliances. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a really analogous example at the moment in, in, in Britain right, with Russell Brand, which I'd like to talk about in more detail later on. Sure. Um, but f for the sake of establishing some core concepts, um, let's go down the rabbit hole. Let's go to the mirror world. Mm -hmm. What is it? Tell us. Well, so I, th th this is the world where um, you know a lot of people who have who who are on the other end of the political spectrum. For me, I mean, I don't know what your politics are, but it's you know it's it's sort of an extreme right world. But there's a double of everything in the world that I live in, right? There's a, there's a parallel argument. Um, you know, I'll go give some North American examples because I'm North American. So you know the 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 um, the, there's the big lie that the Democrats talk about, um, and then there's the big steal, which is what Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson talk about. So the, the idea that the Democrats stole the election, and they say, so it's just kind of mirror arguments, but also like if you get kicked off Twitter, you just go to Getter. If you get kicked off YouTube, then you just go to Rumble. If you can't crowdfund through uh, GoFundMe because people, you know, you're doing things that, that are dodgy, then you can go to GoSendGo, which is a Christian crowdfunding site, which will send a prayer along with your donation. God love so, and it's really a one-to-one. -one. And the book talks a lot about Steve Bannon. He, he isn't just a figure to understand for the United States, though he is that, because he's trying to bring Trump back to the White House. But um, since he left the White House, he's been focused on building what he calls like an, an, uh, um, a populist international. So he uh, has been weaving together a network of far-right political parties, um, who, and some of whom have been gaining power, like for instance in Italy, Giorgia Malone, um, who, whose political party, Fratelli d'Italia, has ties back to Mussolini. Um, she is part of this network and one of his protégés. Um, so when Bannon talks about what I call the mirror world, he says, that they have to build this mirror, like one-to-one -one correlation because that way they can never cancel you or silence you or other you. He says other, other you, which, which, which when he said that, it sort of stopped me in my tracks because that's a word that is used to describe what, what fascists do um, to, to create a kind of an in-group of belonging and an out-group other that you don't need to care about. And then that you know, sets the groundwork for great violence. So to hear somebody like Bannon, who if fascism were ever to come to the United States, it, he would definitely play a starring role in that story. Um, use a word like that is part of the way language becomes absurd. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of us become sort of speechless. And, I, and, and that, you know, I say in the book that I wrote this book feeling speechless, like feeling like I don't understand this world anymore. And I sort of came, obviously, you know, it's like, 300 some pages. So I found my words. <laughs> um, we'll get, uh, I think we'll get, we'll come to that, that speechless point and, yeah. and particularly in the context of what the left can or should be doing in response to, 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 to Steve Bannon. But I mean, first of all, you've obviously spent a huge amount of time listening to him. There's some, an interesting anecdote in the book about you doing pigeon pose, I think, and your husband coming in and being like, are you okay? You're, you're doing yoga and listening to Steve Bannon. Toxing and detoxing. Yeah, is exactly. You've got to do everything in balance. Um, <laughs> and there's a kernel of truth, right, in his analysis, because he will talk about uh, the overreach of Big Pharma. He will talk about regulatory capture. He will talk about 
um, powerful corporate interests or even the military industrial complex. The next step that he goes to, for example, in relation to the military, is then actually quite a confrontational or aggressive stance towards China. Yeah. So you know, maybe it doesn't actually make logically that much sense. However, in the yeah. first instance, the diagnosis is partially true. He's saying things that, 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 that resonate that you won't hear on CNN and MSNBC, like the two other major, uh, the two major cable news shows in the States other than Fox. Um, you know, they tend to be very, very pro-military, very, you know, they get into a panic at the idea that you won't uh, re-up, you know, that the Republicans will shut down government and they won't be able to fund, fund the military. So there are, I think because the center is so well-policed, particularly in the US, but I think also in the UK, in the sense of what makes it onto television, what makes it into the big newspapers. Um, there are a lot of things that if you just speak to it, you know, the fact that people have had terrible experiences with the big pharmaceutical companies, particularly in poorer parts of the United States where they've been flooded with opiates that have gotten people addicted and ruined their lives. Um, so there's lots of reasons to be against big pharma. And part of what I talk about in the mirror world is that the really dangerous dynamic is that once something gets seized upon by Steve, the likes of Steve Bannon, it then becomes unsayable in polite liberal society. So if he is talking about big, you know, Bill Gates and big tech and big pharma, then then that is no longer talked about. Um, you know, we like on the left, we had a strong critique of the fact that these vaccines should never have been patented in the first place. They mm. were they, they were developed with public money. Um, that the entire thing was funded by the public because our governments were bulk buying these vaccines. So why did they get to keep these incredibly lucrative patents? But in but once the anti-vax movement really took off in the mirror world, mainly what you heard was roll up your sleeve and get your shot. Did you get Pfizer or Moderna? And suddenly we're like cheerleaders for, for, for these companies. So that is exactly the wrong approach because the more these issues are not being picked up on the left, not being used, the more Steve Bannon, who's really cosplaying, I mean, he doesn't mean any of it. Um, he's just a political strategist. He's trying to get back in the White House and he sees a bunch of issues that actually Americans care about. They're upset about the endless wars. They're upset about the military spending um, and on and on. Mm. So, yeah. And I mean, maybe this works as an example. Maybe you think it doesn't. You can tell me so if you don't. But for example, big conversation uh, in Britain about Andrew Tate and how these younger men, uh, they look at the world around them. And particularly, I think, because progressives don't talk about or identify things that they see as problems, it mm -hmm. leaves this space, right, for, for sure. the likes of Tate, the likes of... Don't say it, because I'm Canadian. It hurts my feelings. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> you know, certain people who claim to be psychologists, I don't know, people like, people like that, um, that can fill the void, right? Mm -hmm. And if people are struggling to make sense of the world around them and they're not offered, um, you know, an understandable analysis, or maybe not even that, but pe people who point to it and go say, look, this is complex. We don't know what the answer is. We, don't, yeah. we can't provide you with the answers. People who then walk in and say, actually, it's very simple. You know, you're being you're being oppressed by women. You know, you're 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 being crushed. The, you know, your masculine energy is is being mm -hmm. trodden down by liberals and progressives, yeah. etc. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't right. know whether you find think there's validity to that or. No, I th I think that it is a 
you know, I'm not anti-identity politics. I, I think it's really important that we understand that we all meet the world differently. Um, and But I, I am very pro-coalitions. I, you know, I really think that we are up against incredibly powerful, concentrated economic and political power. And the only way that there's a hope in hell of changing things for the better in the face of the climate crisis, in the face of wealth concentration, in the face of surging fascism, which is what we're talking about, um, it's if we enter into much broader, more generous coalitions with everybody who's getting screwed. And that means that there has to be um, not just a critique of inequalities in the current system, but also a horizon of the kind of world that we would want to live in. And everybody needs to see that they have a place in that world, including boys, including men. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that that hasn't been the case, but it hasn't been the case sometimes. I mean, I like I I I I, I see it on university campuses, and you know, part of it is just a, like some of it is just a stage where people are understanding their own oppression and exclusion, and then people get typecast before they've even opened their mouths that they are a certain type of person and um you know i do i like all i would say is any left movement that wants to build power has to have, have a vision of the future where everyone has a place and if people don't see a place then they're going to turn inwards um some people are just going to self-harm they're going to become depressed they're not all going to go to andrew tate mm. a lot of them are just gonna gonna we're just gonna lose them to despair you know and sadness um, but some people are going to listen when, some, when, when a really toxic figure like that says, I have a plan to make you strong. It's because they're afraid of your strength. Mm. Um, and, and even I have a plan for how you should live. I mean, this is what, you know, JP does, right? Is, is, is sort of speak to this idea of like, I don't know how to be in the world, right? Mm. And I think particularly the COVID years has been so hard for interpersonal relationships and just especially for young people where these are key years where we help each other figure out who we're going to be. And so I think we need to look at look at the, the, the needs that they're filling and, and find healthier ways to, to meet those needs. And just to take that back to Bannon, yeah. he and sort of that, I would call it it's van, okay. it's okay, um, that sort of call it a vanguard grouping of sort of um, political forces are organizing far more effectively, right? Yeah. They're doing a much better job of in response to those forces which we just identified. Well, he, he's also co-opting a particular group, which is the Karens. <laughs> and this is, this is, you know, as a, I'm a middle-aged white woman and this, you know, my doppelganger is too. Mm. But, you know, at one point I, I, I describe her in the book as like, um, like the, the mom in chief who wants to speak to the manager on all of our behalves, you yeah. know, about all the things. Mm -hmm. And it starts with masks and vaccines and school closures and, you know, closed gyms and yoga studios, but then it quickly pivots to um, book banning and transphobia and the, the real agenda of, of Steve Bannon. He's very good at, ma at making that pivot. Mm. Um, but he definitely noticed that there were a lot of white women who were feeling left out. He was like, come on over. It's a, yeah, I guess that's the new coalition, right, that he's trying to build, but I just... And Georgia Maloney. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and she says, I am a woman, I am a Christian, I am an Italian, mm. as if people told her she couldn't be any of those things. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. There's, you just you mentioned, I think you mentioned yoga retreats or something in your answer there. Mm -hmm. 
closed yoga studios. Let's talk about the connection then between sort of um, wellness yeah. and this conspiracy culture. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. well, I'll, I'll leave you to talk about it, but there is a, there's kind of a link, isn't there, between the sort of the sovereignty of the individual that those movements inculcated in people. Yeah. And the, the anti-vax kind of narratives that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, just to give you a British example, because <laughs> I've been giving lots of American ones, um, when I was writing my book, This Changes Everything about the climate crisis, I came here to do some research and I went to the town of Totnes to, to, to research transition towns. I have a little bit in the book about it. We were going to have a chapter about it in, in the film that we made, but ended up not doing so. But, you know, was impressed with Totnes. You know, this, I was probably there in 2012. Um, you know, all the solar panels and, and they were planting all these fruit and nut trees and making jokes about the nut trees and things like that. Um, but it seemed like a pretty good-hearted place. And so it was interesting and shocking, frankly, to, to learn that Totnes has become a hotbed for this, you know, in the, in the book I use the phrase diagonalism, of, um, and this is a phrase from a couple of political scientists, um, to describe this political migration uh, um, from right, to, from left to right. But it's not, it, I call it the far out, not the far left. Uh, it's not the far. It's not the far left that's migrating. It's this sort of new age um, wellness, na like people who were very interested in sort of purifying their bodies a little bit, um, like a an appeal to uh, an appeal to nature that was at the at the heart of the politics. Which you know there is a deep history of an alliance between. A fascist political project, which has a hierarchy of some bodies being better than other bodies, and um, you know, kind of new age and occult um, and various wellness crazes. That was a big part of the Nazi project. So that you know, after the Second World War, that that alliance broke apart. But I think what we're starting to see is some elements of that world, not all of it, some elements of that world, um, you know, making the diagonal move once again. Um, and I think it's a combination of factors. Some of it has to do with the individualism of this sort of ideology of wellness, right? Where it's just like, yes, the world's gone mad, but you can perfect your own self, right? So, you know, we've talked about perfecting yourself, your brand, but there's also perfecting your body, perfecting your immune system. So, you know, I think the point where I realized this was a book and not just some very weird thing that was happening to me <laughs> was um, my husband uh, ran for office in Canada for our, our leftish party, the New Democratic Party. And um, we went door knocking and we live in a pretty kind of hippy dippy part of British Columbia. And the Yorkers are pretty radical. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, he, he went to a, a door where he said he could smell the, the sandalwood from the, the sidewalk and out came somebody who I could have taken an Ashtanga class from, you know, very yogi, very kind of ropey muscles, very fit. And she came out and all she wanted to talk about was vaccines and vaccine verification apps. And she asked what his position was. He said, you know, that, that he supported it. And she said, well, I have a strong immune system. I don't need any of that. And he said, well, well there are some people who don't have strong immune systems. And it's a whole premise of epidemiology, like we are a body of interconnected bodies and you know, our, what we do to our body does affect other bodies. And she said, I think those people should die. Just like that, which was, you would, is not something you would expect to hear, you know, from no. your, yeah. And, and so 
I, that's when I thought something very weird is going on if this is happening in, mm. in, in, this, in, this, in this context. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get out of my pub! It's the Politics Show Pubcast. So let's talk about crisis okay. and how crisis relates to um, this because it, could, it might be COVID in that woman's in the instance of that woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you've mentioned the climate crisis a couple of times and perhaps there are parallels mm-hmm. where um, those crises induce fear in people yeah. and there are different responses to fear, right? One is to, one is to try and confront it, one yeah. is to deny it, another is to turn to perhaps slightly more far-fetched solutions. So could you talk yeah. a little bit more about the relationship between conspiracy culture and crisis please yeah and i mean it's not like it's not like there's one crisis over here and another crisis over there the crises are all simultaneous they're all fueling one another they you know the climate crisis didn't take a break just because we were having (laughs) covid um so i think we are in a time when when of great vertigo right and 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 um like literally the ground beneath our, our, our feet is, is changing and we're experiencing these sort of uncanny weather events that you know you have weather here in the UK that, that should just not be here. It's not your weather, it's somebody else's weather and we've had the same experience. Um, so you know, this is what I was saying earlier, like the nature of these global crises means that we can only confront them together. Um, it's only bit large scale policy responses at the national, international, local levels um, that, it, that, that has any hope uh, of, of meeting these crises. But if you look at central uh, of, of dominant politics here in the UK, your, your major parties where I am, like nobody's actually offering solutions. Like nobody is actually saying we are going to respond on the scale of these crises. This is why, you know, in the book I quote, quote Greta's wonderful speech in Glasgow from a few years back where she went there and, you know, just basically made fun of everyone and said, you know, green economy, blah, 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 build back better, blah, blah, blah. Like you're all saying the right things, um, but you're, it, there, you've severed the connection between words and actions, words and meaning. So I think in a context like that, where we are facing these very real crises, whether we admit it or not, <laughs> we all know, I believe, on, that it is true that we really are living in very consequential times where what we do in the next few years determines the future of our planet together. Um, that, and, and we're not seeing real solutions on offer from our political class. I don't think it's any surprise that large numbers of people are just going, eh, reality, I'd rather go over here and just make up, make up our own crises and make up our own 
uh, you know, stories. Basically, like a lot of these conspiracy um, narratives are like straight out of Hollywood movies. You know, QAnon is just, you know, it's very, very Hollywood. White hats and black hats, and there's mm. going to be a great storm, and we're going to arrest all the bad guys. You know, it's really silly stuff, right? <laughs> um, but at least they have a story of some kind of redemption, of some mm. kind of justice. And so I see it first and foremost as a distraction machine. Um, where you just get to not look at the actual crises that you that you have to face, mm -hmm. um, and you just check out and choose your own adventure. To talk um, a little bit about responding to those crises, yeah. then, and I think we'll do, and um, we'll probably come into more detail later on. Okay. But why can't neoliberalism provide the answers to those crises? Do you think? Well, b largely because it created them, um, and um, you know, I th I, you know, there's always this sort of three-part conversation that goes on when you have surging authoritarianism um, and even fascism where liberalism and centrism sets the context in which there is a strong going to be some kind of a strong reaction um, and that was the case in in the 30s with with um, deregulated markets that led to the Great Depression punitive sanctions on Germany people were suffering they were suffering and and when people are suffering on that scale, there has to be a large-scale crisis. There has to be a large-scale response. In the U.S., there was a, the most progressive government that the U.S. has ever had in the 1930s under FDR. They had the, the original New Deal, not a perfect program. I'm not saying it was all perfect, but you had basically the, the weaving of the social safety net. You had um, millions and millions of people being directly put to work. You had billions of trees planted and, and jobs created for young people uh, um, to, to rehabilitate the natural world from, from, from the kind of exhaustive extraction. I could go on and on, but the point is that that is fighting fascism. <laughs> um, and right now, and, and, and FDR was very conscious of that. I mean, fascism was a real threat in the United States. Um, and, and so when things are radically in crisis, as they are right now and as they were then, they're going to go one way or the other. Um, so the role of the left is to be the left, like to actually be a serious uh, countervailing power uh, to surging authoritarianism. And, and, you know, and that is part of, I think, the nervousness of a moment like this and why we can't get lost in our own reflections, um, you know, whether it's our, our brands or kind of like mirror world reactivity with people who we don't want to be like and letting them determine what issues we engage with and what issues we don't mm -hmm. engage with. Um, you know, I, I really do believe that only a robust left can beat back fascism, um, and that requires a great deal of strategicness, difficult coalition, making sure everyone feels included, all of that work. Because there is no, there is no victory for authoritarianism and fascism on the right that isn't also a story of left-wing fracturing, sectarianism, and a refusal to make strategic alliances on the anti-fascist left. Let's talk about um, one of your doppelgangers, fellow travellers, uh -huh. um, who also inhabits this mirror world now, Russell Brand. Um, must be. <laughs> we must. Okay. Um, at one point, like Wolf, you know, a darling of the left and of mainstream media, um, he now faces very, very serious accusations, allegations of a rape and a sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, you met him, you were on his show. Let's talk about him and, and probably also more, more specifically his position within conspiracy culture. Mm -hmm. Are people like him just grifters? 
people like Wolf, just grifters, in the sense they have this journey from the left to adopting these different political positions. And also, as a second part to that question, because of the position that they inhabit in the mirror world, is it possible for them to be cancelled? Can they ever face up to the consequences of their actions because they exist in these alternate platforms? Mm. Well, Donald Trump would seem to argue otherwise, that there's literally nothing you can do, no no number of indictments, no crimes. <laughs> there is nothing you can do that will get you canceled. In fact, it, Trump is a really important case to look at. Within his this worldview, the more he is charged with crimes, um, the more of, a, of not just a hero he is, but the more proof there is that actually, as, as they like to say, he's over the target, right? They wouldn't be going after him like this if he weren't the hero that he's being cast as being. That's, that's the sort of self-enclosed logical loop, which is why, you know, the, 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 when there was that mugshot, lots of Democrats thought, oh, we got him, right? And within hours, the, or less, you know, the, the Trump campaign had put out that mugshot and fundraised millions of dollars off of it because this was finally proof that he was really like this kind of messianic figure. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't think you can get canceled um, unless you, I don't know, like admit that you made mistakes. Like, I mean, the, the, the way you get canceled is, is, is uh, you know, by... by yeah, by, by, by holding yourself accountable in a, any kind of serious way, which one can't picture any of the figures we're talking about doing. Um, in terms of like, are they just grifters? I, I mean, that's just such a hard question to answer. Like, I think people are generally, com- generally um, complicated and usually need some kind of cover story that they believe in um, in order to rationalize Grifting, like I don't think people generally wake up in the morning going, "I'm just going to fleece people." Mm. Um, I think you know, even a grifter like Steve Bannon, um, you know, and we know he's a grifter because he you know takes people's money to build a wall that he's not building <laughs> and things like that. Um, I think he 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 believes that he's not just a grifter, and I think he's also very passionate about power. This is a huge market. This is something that you know I, I I've been covering profiteering from crisis and disasters for a long time. That's what the shock doctrine is about. And, you know, I've traveled to disaster zones and, and um, you know, tracked the rise of companies like Blackwater and Halliburton who are just like their business model is profiting off of a massive crisis and the need whether to build military bases or to have private security and, or to rebuild from the, from, from the disaster. What we've seen during this COVID era is different because it's, it's, it's disaster profiteering or disaster capitalism intersecting with the attention economy. And so what that means is that conspiracy itself is a massive industry. So if you do this right, like if you put the right number of, like the right kind of tags and headlines around your YouTube videos or your Rumble videos, um, you will get huge numbers of views, much more than before. Mm. And, and that is money, that's monetizable, which is you know, what we're all hearing a lot about these days. So does that mean that money is the only reason why people suddenly start doing these things? Are they, um, I, I don't know, there's no way that you or I could know that, mm. um, but it's certainly probably an incentive. Without ascribing um, intentionality to any of, any of these people, but is there something to be said for adopting these mirror world platforms, whether it is, you know, Rumble, Getter, mm-hmm. any of the other places you've mentioned, mm-hmm. that when 
the law possibly catches up with you, whether it's Trump, whether it's Brand, whether it's anyone else, yeah. that then when they do, and the mainstream media, you know, as in the case here, right, where it was um, Channel 4 dispatches in the Sunday yeah. Times, they make an allegation and your followers go, well, he's been telling us for years oh. not to trust what yeah. these people say. And, no, and more, more than telling them that, telling them they're coming for me. Mm. I mean, I've, I, he, he posted videos that said, like, oh, I've been getting warnings that, you, that they're coming for us. Are they coming for us? It, I mean, the breadcrumbs were all there. Yeah. And it's almost a way of, well, I guess if your audience is already distrustful, you're just sort of magnifying, reflecting their own feelings back at them. Well, you are you are protected from any accountability, that's for sure. Um, and and so, you know, and I don't I don't know that this was all conscious, but it, but it's a loop and it's it's something that I see a lot of people doing. Um, but it's it's more than that. You're protected. It's that there's there's you're more believed because they're coming after you. Mm-hmm. It's proof that you are one of the only truth tellers, that you are Cassandra, that, you're, that, it, that is, is your power. And it's just so bizarre because really, I think the appeal of these platforms is zero accountability. No, you don't have to, you know, so many of these, like, you know, it's, I, it's not always fun being edited. Like as a, you know, I, I I don't love it all the time, but I'm grateful that I have editors. Yep. Um, they've saved me from myself a few times, and it's I find it kind of confounding the idea that you would not want anybody to be a check on you. Um, but it seems that that it really is the goal, mm. and and that's what. You know, I was listening to somebody claim that there was this was some huge unprecedented censorship that. Um, you know, brand was being demonetized. And I just think it's so weird because this is, these are relatively new technologies. And if somebody was working at a broadcaster or a newspaper and they faced serious allegations of, of, of criminal activity, they would not stay on the air. There would be an investigation. They would say, we're going to look into it. And when mm-hmm. we find out, you know, you'll see them again. But, you, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't just stay there. So this isn't unprecedented. What's unprecedented is the platforms themselves mm-hmm. um, and that you have a lot of people who don't have any accountability. And that's part of what's attracting them. And even a platform like YouTube or X or Facebook, which has very little controls, that's still too much. And they want, like, absolute freedom to you know engage say whatever they want i think um well in the book right you don't write off the followers of people like wolf mm-hmm. like brand as irrational and as we've discussed actually fear is a very rational response to a lot of the crises and problems that we're facing yeah. um you write actually quotes the real conspiracy is capitalism so what do you mean by that <laughs> yeah i mean so i think that the biggest reason why conspiracy culture is spreading uh, because this this business model doesn't work unless there are millions of people who are drawn to some kind of an explanation for why their lives are not the lives that they thought they were going to have like that you know they thought they were going to be able to buy a house or why are they struggling to pay for their grocery bills um, you know why do they feel so so insecure um, and conspiracy culture offers an explanation that says well it's George Soros, Bill Gates, and Anthony Fauci, you know, or the Jews and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, And the reason why that works as a story is because we don't actually learn about what capitalism is at school. Like, I don't know about the high school curriculum here, but I don't think... They do not. (laughs) They tell you that there always needs to be an underclass. And actually, it is built into the system that there is going to be this kind of wealth consolidation. Um, 
especially if it's deregulated in the way that, that, that it has been in the neoliberal era. Um, so that's why I say like only a left, only the left um, can, can be a countervailing force because it has another explanation. It actually has a systemic explanation. And this is why, you know, in the 1800s, uh, anti-Semitism, which said, you know, there is like through tracks like the elders of the Protocols of, uh, of, of Zion said, you know, which was saying like there's a room of Jews somewhere that are just plotting this whole thing. Sorry, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, th th that was called the socialism of fools. Um, and so, you know, I say in the book that the only way to counter the socialism of fools is with the socialism of facts, <laughs> like of actual an analysis of how these systems work. But it's it's more than that too, which is that you know these Hollywood narratives that 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 are at the core of this culture of this conspiracy culture, they are narratives of quick fixes. Like like I don't know, there's bumper stickers in 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 my neighborhood that say um, "Make the Nuremberg Code Great Again," which is which is means bring them all up on war crimes, you know, uh, uh, charges. And it's this idea that if we could just like arrest Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci and Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, um, then everything would be great and we'd have awesome capitalism again, right? Um, so, but what the left has to say is actually much more complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, okay, here's a system. It's built to generate this kind of immiseration and inequality. And we're only going to be able to do anything about it if we all come together and build these mass movements. Um, so I think there is this really powerful interplay between the weakness of the left at this point in history, right? I mean, we're not at our best at the moment. Like, I think we can all remember times when it felt like we were a little bit more organized um, and focused on a project than, we, than, than is the case right now. And when there isn't that left offer, that's when the... Hollywood, you know, QAnon-y type stories, I think, ha have more to offer. Because what is, what is the alternative? Just a bunch of Marxists lecturing you about capitalism? Like, that's not a solution. That's just... That's just... University. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, can we talk... You mentioned the uh, Nuremberg Code, right? Yeah. There, let's talk about the language, because genocide, mm. holocaust, apartheid, these words come up over and over again, and quite often... Uh, they're misapplied, right? Yeah. They're not. They're not used to describe their their proper meaning. Yeah. Um, so, could you talk about that a little, a little bit more, particularly actually whether or not, in your view, or presumably it does, it it cheapens the use the uses of those words, and it renders us unable, perhaps, to identify them when they are taking place in the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the feeling of speechlessness is this sort of strategy of appropriation. Um, and this is a tactic of the Trumpian right of just kind of like whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, which is, you know, Trump did with fake news, for instance, which is a word that has real meaning to describe stories that are made to look like they come from a serious news organization, but were, are completely made up. Like during the 2016 election, there was a story that went viral that said that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. That was fake news. That did not happen, and somebody made a headline to make it look like it happened. And that, that helped Trump. I mean, there were a few of these stories during the campaign. And as soon as he had a megaphone um, as president, he immediately started calling the entire uh, 
you know, the, the entire press corps fake news. Um, so not only did that mean that people, his followers would not trust anything that they saw in the New York Times or CNN, it also meant that people couldn't talk about fake news because he had, he had, he had made it absurd. Mm. You know, I, in the book I use a Yiddish word called pipik, which is like just it, it, it's just making it silly and unusable and absurd. Um, it comes from a doppelganger book by Philip Roth. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah. So I think the language gets appropriated, but you know, I there's something else I think going on with the the, the particular appropriation of. Holocaust, slavery, um, Jim Crow, which was the, the, the segregation in the United States, apartheid. All of these words have been used to describe what it was like to not be vaccinated, um, which is very odd um, because I'm not saying it wasn't hard to not be vaccinated for a while, um, but it was not a Holocaust and it was not apartheid and it was not Jim Crow. And it was most certainly not slavery as my doppelganger claimed in a viral video. Um, so one of the things that I look at in a part of the book, the, head, the headline of which is, uh, or the subtitle of which is, I too am a victim, the biggest victim, <laughs> is the interplay between this kind of wild appropriation of the language of um, anti-fascism, but also of, 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 of social justice movements and particularly racial justice movements, um, at, like the rise of the anti-lockdown movement and like and the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, there were two big movements during COVID. There was the Black Lives Matter uprising in the spring and summer of 2020, and then there was this huge um, uh, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine movement afterwards. I mean, it was a little bit before, but but it really took off afterwards. Um, and I think part of that relates to some of what we've been talking about before was just this kind of feeling of, you know, do I have a place in this or trying to hold on to some, trying to kind of get get a rung on the victim ladder, except for going straight to the top and being like, no, I am a victim of all the greatest crimes against humanity combined of the past 500 years, um, also genocide. And, uh, and it's because of this mask and vaccine. My, um, <laughs> my final question for you, <laughs> Naomi, is um, about lessons we can draw. Well, first, I just say that there is. I have a quote in the book from Philip Roth about from his doppelganger novel, which is, "It's too ridiculous to take seriously, and too yeah. serious to be ridiculous." So, I mean, I feel like I'm in that state a lot of the time, where I'm laughing about things that really aren't funny. Um, but it's very hard to not do so. I feel like uh, we're all sort of frozen in the laugh cry. You're energy. in. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Totally, I totally agree with you, and it's. Um, but this kind of appropriation is very serious. Yeah. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course, it is. Um, but we it need is. words. How else can you yeah. communicate? Yeah, it's fucking frustrating. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Last question: what, What's the lesson that we should take from this? Where do we, where do we go from here? And if you know, now that we've established the problems, how do we change them? It's a big question for us. I think the biggest question is, I mean, the biggest, the, the biggest takeaway for me is, um, don't try to stab your doppelganger. Um, <laughs> try to figure out who, how, where, their, where their power is coming from. Um, and I think that the way we defeat this is to be better versions of ourselves, <laughs> um, you know, not just reacting to them. Uh, you know, sometimes it does require a, a reaction, but 
you know, if we are genuinely afraid of this scrambling of truth um, and the fact that it's mixed up with a lot of guns and is very menacing, um, you know, that requires, I think, um, a very serious response that drains it of its power. And that means looking at where they are mixing and matching things that are true with things that are very dangerous and false and take away the true things. And the way to take away the true things is to use them in, use them to their full effect, not go silent, not say because they're talking about it, we can't talk about it. Talk about it louder mm. because they're talking about it. Absolutely. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.